Welcome to the False Neutral Podcast. I'm Pete. Eric and Garrett are with me for episode 111 for April of 2021. And we have a guest this month. We have Mike Festiva. Mike, why don't you give us a little bit of an idea of who you are, what you do, and uh, let our audience know about our guest. Well, thanks for having me, guys. I appreciate it. Um, Real quick background, I've actually never watched or listened to podcasts or anything, so this is all kind of new to me, but I really appreciate you guys inviting me on your uh, podcast here, and I do um, got a YouTube channel I've had for about six years now, basically fabrication and building stuff, usually on a budget, having fun with it, working with the tools you got, and just kind of having fun with it and sharing tips and tricks with people, so that's kind of my YouTube channel, Mike Festiva. And I, you guys got to hold me because you're interested in the um, Predator powered mini bikes. Yes. So that's, yeah. That brings us to this point. I have to ask, Mike Festiva, are you a a current or former Ford Festiva owner? <laughs> yes, that's why I have such a silly name on there. Yes, I actually. The funny thing is how I came up with that name, and I was like, "This is an awful name," but I wasn't ever planning to have a YouTube channel. I originally had to open a Gmail account because I had a little Ford Festiva that I was fixing up, and I for, uh, joined a forum. And Mike Festiva was a name for the forum. And a few years later, I built a sawmill, wanted to share with people how I built it. And just so happened, I had a Gmail account. And the name was like, oh, this is awful. I'll change it at some point. And I didn't really want to use my real name. You never know who you're dealing with out there, you know? So it's like I stuck with it, and now it's like, I guess it is what it is. I don't mind it anymore, you know? I am known online as Peter Tonchinomi because uh, way back when when Jalopnik was first starting, Jeff Glucker and some of the guys started Hooniverse were all on there. And I had to come up with a, a handle, so I put in Tonchinomi, which is Japanese for motorcycles only. Okay. <laughs> and yes, I did have a 93 Ford Festiva, the last year they made them. An incredibly good car for what it was, just unkillable, and they punched so much above their weight. I'm a I'm a huge Festiva fan. I've followed some of the people that have done like uh, you know uh, rally builds and race builds out of them, and they're just really cool cars. So that's why I had to ask. Yeah, there's a lot you can do with them. I think mine was a '93 as well, and there's a lot of engine swaps, brake swaps, and. Um, that was kind of why I was involved in that forum was just because I don't mind budget projects like that. And it was an awesome, fun project for sure. Uh, okay. Garrett, Eric, we need to get into our workshop update. So Garrett, the first question is, do you own a Vitpolin? I do not. Oh, I was really hoping you would. <laughs> I was really hoping I would too. <laughs> um, no, my, my wife put the hard no on that one. And what's funny is we were out at dinner last night and we were sitting outside, like on the sidewalk area. One of those pulled up to the stoplight, like right behind us. And I was like, Lee, that was the bike that I was going to buy. 
And so our boys were with us. And so she looks at the boys and she said, look, that's the motorcycle that dad almost had. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I have to tell you, my wife and I took our Can-Am Spiders down to southeast Missouri to absolutely heaven for roads. Those really tight, twisty Ozark roads up in the hills no traffic, smooth, well-marked pavement, constant camber and elevation changes and everything. And the short version of the story is we're going Saturday to pick up her new 2021 Spider RT that she's trading in her 2012 on. Cool. So, so the trailer paid for itself in one trip. It's well, continuing to cost us. Cost, yeah, <laughs> yes, that's yeah. what I was going to say. It sounds like it's costing him a lot. Mike, I just recently bought a, a 20-foot utility trailer because my wife got really sick of driving forever to get to nice roads. So we bought a trailer that would take both of our Can-Am Spider three-wheelers down to wherever we want to go. And uh, there's a really fantastic lodge in the middle of nowhere down in the Mark Twain National Forest called... Echo Bluff State Park, beautiful lodge, full restaurant, and there's not a four-lane road within two hours of it. Really? We found out about it because there's a company, Butler Maps, makes map for motorcyclists of here's where the good curvy roads are. And basically, this lodge sits in the middle of a circle of all of their top-rated gold level roads in a loop around it. And we're like, okay, we got to go down there. Uh, We don't know what it's going to be like. It was gorgeous. We had great food at the hotel. Expensive, but they have a captive audience and they know it. So yeah, had a really, really good week. We've both been really stressed out with work. So it was just a week that we woke up every day, maybe two and a half to four hours of riding, come back, maybe take a nap, maybe binge watch some stuff on the web and go to dinner. It was just a really low key week. Had a great time, but on the way back, she decided she wanted to trade it in for a new one. So she's getting a new one. Uh And I have a brand new Leviathan of a, uh, iMac with all of the fastest processor and 32 gig. And, uh, you, you may want to, uh, return that. Why? Because in about six weeks, the uh, M1 slash M2 version of that will be coming out. I don't want the M1, and I knew about that. But uh, Okay. Yeah, I didn't say. I wanted the Intel chip. But anyways. Okay. So those are the two reasons that I'm not buying a new motorcycle anytime soon. Between the trailer, a, a, a new Can-Am Spider, and a computer for me, we're not spending any money. And fortunately, I bought all the parts I needed for my Predator-powered torque converter bike last month. So I I kind of went on a spending splurge at the right time. So any other workshop updates or old business that you have before we jump into what Mike's been up to? In the mail today, my check for announcing at Daytona for the Daytona 200 last month. That was very, very cool to watch. Uh, Eric announced the Daytona 200 motorcycle race thinking he was going to be announcing at the track and ended up announcing for the worldwide stream on CBS sports. So I got to watch him 
or watch the race and hear you. And I don't think most people appreciate how hard that is to talk extemporaneously for as long as you guys did. I thought you did a really good job actually saying things and not repeating yourself over and over or going, uh, uh, which is, I can't get through 40 minutes of a podcast without having at least a couple of severe brain lockups. So, uh, yeah, it, um, it was fun. It was stressful. I thought I did a okay job, you know, beware of half information on the internet for feedback. Cause I saw a lot of really negative feedback. And then as I searched, it wasn't necessarily about me. So I felt a little better about it, but I got, I had a bunch of people texting me and calling me afterwards saying, Hey, that was really good. You did a great job. And people who wouldn't feed me a line just to make me feel better. And, you know, there are people who are usually pretty brutal, uh, when it comes to giving me feedback. And so I'm like, okay. And then I saw this other feed and I'm anyway. So yeah, I was a little, Hey, if, if you're talking about YouTube comments, not just YouTube, there was bulletin board. It was everywhere, <laughs> everywhere. Mike, uh, what are your YouTube comments? Do you ever get negative feedback? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, I kind of say to some friends and people I talk with once in a while, basically, uh, yeah, I got like 99% good subscribers and maybe 1% bad and uh, some trolls that come through on occasion. Yeah, you just got to deal with it. You put a lot of hard work out to make the videos and bring people along. And it is a little frustrating when people just leave just brutally rude comments. Best way to do is just to block them. I have a hard time with that sometimes. I try to like... Not be rude, terribly rude back, but just try to like make sense of the situation. And it usually never goes good that people come back extra brutal. Um, but it's just one of those things. They're just trolls. There seem to be some negative people out there, but I try to focus more on like the 99% of the people that are super positive and excited to come along. I've done 300 videos with, you know, car reviews and some other stuff. So I'm, I'm used to it uh, mm-hmm. like you and like, you know, and there's certain brands of vehicle that really attract them when you're doing oh, car yeah. reviews. Um, and so sometimes if someone's being super obnoxious, I'm just a complete a-hole back to them. And just <laughs> people have let this go on. And like a cancer, it continues to grow. I'm here to eradicate it with all the chemotherapy and radiation I can. So and and most of the time, though, I just like I don't even I don't even care. I don't even look at the comments. It's pointless. But no, I agree with you. It's like uh, you're going to get people whose mission in life is that, you know, because they're so miserable. The only way they can find happiness is to is to bring you down to their level of misery. Yeah. And and yes, hours and hours and hours of work to put together a nice video. And then those are the ones that always get the least amount of views, too. So <laughs> the ones you put the most amount of effort into are the one or, the, or that you really care about. Those get the least amount of views. The ones you just throw together like, yeah, whatever. You know, those are the ones that blow up. So, right. Why is that? I've like worked hard on certain videos like, man, this one's going to do great. This is I put a lot of effort. I'm really happy this turned out. And then the ones you're like, eh, I don't even know if I want to post this. And then you do. And those do really well. Weird. I have to tell you, not only uh, does Garrett's friend and I have Predator powered motorcycles because you inspired us. I had recently given up on TIG welding and had gotten rid of my welder. When I saw your video on the 125 titanium flux welder and ran out to buy it. And it actually is for somebody who only periodically does little tack welding jobs. It's a really cool little box. It's I really was pleased and I got on sale for like $169. I'm like, 
How can you afford to not have one of these around? Oh, so worth it. So worth it. The first time I fixed the handle on my mower, I was already money ahead. You know, it paid for itself with the first repair, so. Yeah, those are pretty good little welders. You know, we have one at my work. We have a lot of bigger welders here, too. But um, sometimes I work in a bigger factory and something might break for somebody on a table or a hanger and a bracket. And we can run out there when they're on their lunch break and uh, no bottle, no nothing. Just plug it into 110 and you can weld up something super quick and be out of there. And people laugh because they're so small. It looks like a toy almost. 14 pounds but they are really good for simple little projects especially if you're just starting to get into welding you know why don't you tell people about your your current build which is not two wheeled but it's it's still (laughs) really cool and i'm really into it well let me give a little background and how my motivation is on things and i find that i can put in so many months on a project before i have to give it a break and move on to something else and if you guys followed any of my previous build was the articulated mini dump truck which was a uh, subaru running gear with the predator uh, the predator engine again as you a do pulp. a lot of stuff with predator <laughs> engines it's it's very cool they're so modular and available you know if you build a something a project around one of those engines even if it blows up you can go to the store for a few hundred bucks and put another one in it you know so I was working on the articulated truck for a while and I spent a good 10 months into it and finally just kind of getting burned out um For me, I like to work on a project for a while when I'm inspired and then stop, go to something else and I'll come back to it. But I have a lot of people like, where's the next video? Where's the next video? So I finally got about 10 months in on that project and I just had to give it a break. And then I had this old Polaris, ugly six by six uh, quad thing sitting around my house. A friend gave me years ago. It was broken and I ran it for a little while, but it had a hideously unreliable two stroke Polaris engine in it. And um, it would backfire so bad, it would actually break the exhaust springs on it. And it was just hideous. It would smoke so bad, it had the auto loop style, whatever Polaris calls that. Um, I had that sitting around forever. And then finally, I one day I was like, man, that would be a really cool thing if I could widen it slightly and make it into one of those little mini, um, mini pins gower. So that's kind of where I started off with and <laughs> you guys have been seeing that project for for somebody that might not know pinsgauer is a is a six-wheeled military vehicle from austria austria i was gonna say somewhere in europe <laughs> so yeah so so it's not quite to scale is it no and you know i've never seen one in real life so you know i get some people get a little more crucial to detail than i'm taking it like it's a fun project ideally for me and my son to go ride around on back roads and the trails it's just as some people say it's a glorified golf cart it basically is it doesn't have the true running gear of the pensgauer basically when it's all locked and the front differentials are locked it's full six-wheel drive so it does have six-wheeled potential but it has solid axles in the back rather than independent suspension but yeah, it's a much smaller. Uh, there's a halflinger, which is probably a lot closer to. People like to argue with me when I'm building. Uh, that's like the smaller Pinsgauer military vehicle. And um, it is probably close to halflinger, but I do like the pet styling of the Pinsgauer a bit more. So I'm, I'm going that route with it. And like I said, I've never seen one in real life. So I'm just looking at a few photos and just tried my best to build it. I've been watching your, your videos on all of this. I am very envious of your... Uh... CNC table. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, man. Uh, Everything that I do on my bikes, if I have to fabricate a bracket or something, it's, you know, I'm cutting it out with with a hacksaw and a file. And when I'm all done, it it 
looks like it was done with a hacksaw on a file. You know, and so I'm looking at the stuff that you're making. And it's just, you know, printing something off with a computer. It's, it's just that easy. It's, I'm, it's pretty amazing to have that in my home shop. You know, you guys see my shop is bratty as hell. Like, it's just like I've kind of scabbed it together over the years. And if you go back to my channel six years ago, and I was welding. I built that sawmill with a angle grinder, a drill, and an old broken Lincoln welder that I got from a friend and fixed up. Like, I didn't have much tools back then. And so for the last six years, I've, I've really developed some stuff. I started investing in myself. I've always liked fabrication, but a lot of times I used to have to go over to my friend's house and use his tools and just drags a project out longer. You can't quite build it how you want. So over the years, I started investing in myself and put some money years ago into a friend's CNC. So I'd go over there and use it sometimes. It's not quite like having one at your own house. And uh, yeah, I picked up that CNC a few years back as the smaller version. And it's so nice to be able to duplicate parts and have that capability in your own home shop. It's a pretty amazing tool. How well does that thing cut through aluminum? It cuts pretty good. It leaves a little bit more of a coarse edge, so you might want to do a little sanding and grinding. And, of course, you want to wear a respirator, and you want to drain your water table afterwards because it can make the water kind of a little funky. I can't remember what it will add to it, but it, it creates a kind of a gas that could be explosive if yeah. you cut up with aluminum in the water. So I just always drain my table right Got afterwards. It. But it's not nearly as clean of a cut on aluminum as it is uh, on steel and stainless steel, but it still cuts it out. If I got to make brackets or anything, I still go to that machine for cutting aluminum. Yeah. Yeah, that's a very cool setup to have. And I would love to have one in my shop. I've got a vertical mill and I've got a lathe and, you know, some other nice tools, but... I always still just send part files off to a local shop to get cut, and I would love to be able to just do it at home. Well, the amazing thing about those tables, they've come down so much in price. You know, like my buddy's table, I put like a thousand bucks into about four years ago just because he was talking about buying it. He got it used, but it's a plasma cam. I think they run like eight to ten grand. Right. So, I mean, the first CNC table I bought was sixteen hundred bucks. It was a small one. And since then, I upgraded for the $2,500 one that I'm running now. But, you know, 10 years ago, to imagine having that capability in your shop. I know. It's, it's amazing. You know? It is, yeah. So in all of these tasks that you've been doing, you did do the, was it an XR80 or XR100 that you put the Predator motor in? Yeah. I'll give you a little background why I had an XR chassis without the engine. Um, and this video I'm going to mention, it gets trolled surprisingly often, not the Predator Power Bike, but the previous project. Um, my nephew was about 13 at the time, and he was outgrowing his XR100. At that point, we put a big bore kit in it. It was a 120 BBR big bore kit, big cam and all that stuff. And we've all had XR100s when we were kids growing up, you know, and it was a pretty common bike around here for trails. But he was, you know, drum brakes and kind of mediocre suspension. And so we were like, man, I remember seeing in motorcycle magazines growing up, uh, XR100 engine swapped into two-stroke frames. So we found a rolling chassis CR80 big wheel for him for like three or 400 bucks, front and back disc brakes, you know, eight or probably 10 inches of travel at least on that thing. And so one winter I helped him. I was like, hey, you're outgrowing your extra 100 to swap that BBR 120 engine into that frame. Sitting out for who knows how long outside with the spark plug out. The crank was locked up. Previous owner didn't take care of it. I don't think they knew how to mix the gas, you know. <laughs> but um, we swapped that engine in over one winter. I helped him. But that video for helping out your nephew and trying to get him riding on a bike, you wouldn't believe how many people 
act as if I just like massacred those bikes. <laughs> you know, a lot of people get their feathers ruffled from that one. I don't know why. Uh, your Predator powered XR100. I had never seen anything like that before. And my friend was talking to me about wanting to put a Predator engine in a motorcycle. Mm-hmm. And when I saw your video, I was shocked at how well it actually like accelerated. It's still slow, but I mean, it went right. Yeah. And uh, we put a Predator engine in a old KX125. It was like right after he showed me your video and he's like, I want to build one. I was at my buddy's place and back like leaning against a tree and some weeds. He had this old KX125 with no engine in it. Perfect um, and and so, yeah, I was like, hey, I'll buy that from you. Know, 50 bucks. He's like, OK, let's load it up. So I took it home. Yeah. And we put the Predator engine in it. First ride, we ended up breaking the chain. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we got some. Uh, parts to put a 520 chain nice. sprockets on it so hopefully that won't happen again but yeah super cool i'm like actually pretty shocked at how well it went around uh yeah. with a predator engine in it they're pretty impressive i've always kind of wanted to put one of those uh engines in a bike and me and my brother talked about that for years but after doing that xr 100 120 kit swap mm-hmm. to that cr i had that rolling chassis laying around for about a year and I think I finally was like, man, I got a Predator engine in my garage. I was going to make a mini mill sawmill with. And I just realized that putting that much effort to build another sawmill on my YouTube channel, most people didn't want to see it. So I was like, ah, mm-hmm. might as well put this engine in this bike. And I got all of the parts. I was like, man, it looks like it might fit in there pretty well. Yeah. And it was simple. I was just kind of making a video to show what I was doing, encourage others. Like you said, 50 bucks for a rolling chassis, 100 bucks for an engine on sale. That's a cheap motorcycle. <laughs> yeah, pretty good way to go. Yeah. Uh, there's some downsides to it, like keep an extra belt with you and keep some more pull starter cord because you can't roll start right, them. Right, right. And the side case is a little vulnerable if you dump them on the fan side. Like yeah. that pull starter mechanism can get dented in pretty easy. And the belts are notoriously bad for burning up. So yeah. <laughs> keep that in mind. Right. Yeah. So your video now, I just looked, it has over a million views. That's pretty impressive. Are you shocked that it has as many views as it does? Yeah, I'm pretty surprised. Like, that's probably, I think, the best video I've done view-wise on my channel. And um, it's it's done pretty well. There was a point where it just went, like, I've never really had a video go viral, but I would say it went semi-viral. There was a few days where I was getting, you know, 100,000 views a few summers back when it came out where I was getting 100,000 views in one day. I was like, I've never had a video do anything like this. And that was only yeah. for like a few days stretch, but I was like blown away by it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's fun just to kind of share that stuff with other people. Like I, I've always grown up on dirt bikes and stuff. So I kind of wanted to share like, Hey, this is a simple way. It's not a real shiftable motorbike, but you know, I know some people are very sensitive about mini bikes, like the little tiny, tiny yep. tired ones and the hard one. We've all ridden those too, but like, it is kind of nice to have a step up and drum brakes and um, from some of those have like scrubber brakes yeah, and a little suspension. So it's just kind of one of those things I've built it and just want to share with other people what the potentials are and uh, get kids out there riding again. You know, maybe dad mm-hmm. son project, you know, mm-hmm. or father daughter project. Yeah, it's funny you should talk about mini bikes because in trying to do some research on, you know, Predators and the GX clones and stuff, every time I'd go search for something. The best answer came from a forum called oldminibikes.com. And so I joined the forum 
And now I really want to build some little mini bikes. I mean, it's like, (laughs) yeah, for sure. I didn't really ever have mini bikes. None of my friends ever had them. So most people grow up knowing about them. I didn't know a thing about them and I missed out on something. I, you know, in my fifties and I'm like, yeah, I want to build a little, you know, taco mini bike or a, or a, well, let's build some, let's build some uh, mini bikes, man. I've never owned yeah. one either, but I've ridden them in friends' fields. And uh, I remember being a kid and wanting to try and talk my parents into one at a garage sale so bad. It was yellow. I think it was from like coast to coast. It was a little, little store-bought one. And I couldn't talk them into it. I was about, I don't know, six years old at the time. And But I've ridden some in friends growing up, you know, friends had. And uh, I think one of the last experiences I ever had with a mini bike, this is years ago, I I was kind of went through a go-kart stage, but it wasn't when I was like a really young kid. I remember getting some go-karts and never could get them figured out and get them running. And back then the internet wasn't really available. So it wasn't easy to get on there and order a go-kart chain and clutches. So um, years later, we ended up getting go-karts and me and my buddies had the thing called Thursday Night Thunder at my work. And we'd rip around in my late teens and go racing around go-karts around the building uh, and then years after we got out of go-karts, my friend had a mini bike chassis and we put the go-kart engine on there and it had a torque converter, but it had a separate, it wasn't one of the cast aluminum ones where you bolt it to the side of the motor. Like you guys are probably familiar mm-hmm. with the mm-hmm. And this one, the motor sat on a plate and it had like a jack shaft style, but you, depending on where you move the motor, you could actually adjust the belt tension that way. Mm-hmm. And we put it up, set it up wrong. And that thing was like a dragster bike. Basically it wouldn't governor of course was removed. So it wouldn't kick in the clutch wouldn't actually kick in until it hit like five grand and <laughs> it would almost shoot up from under. You had to weight yeah. the bars so hard. We like a high stall converter. Like, oh, it was yeah. ridiculous. We were just cracking up laughing, seeing this grass flying out the back tire on the silly little mini bike. And it was wicked. Like it, it didn't go fast, but it just, grabbed at such high rpms it almost would shoot out from under you so (laughs) like a few uh a few summers ago my friends and i decided it would be really funny to get a mini bike so we were on craigslist and found some like really old taco mini bike and it didn't have an engine in it so we put a predator engine in it and uh somebody had like welded the seat on further back and the thing it was like the weight distribution was so weird that like almost any amount of throttle or acceleration and it would violently flip backwards. Like there was no saving it. Like it was going backwards on you. And so we would always, you know, have like unexpected people ride it mm-hmm. and like, you know, not on pavement, but like in the backyard and every single one of them would flip it over backwards, like <laughs> invariably. And we just thought it was the funniest thing. So we went and bought another one. And then shortly after that, we went and bought another one. So we had just one summer, all three of us had these like violently dangerous mini bikes <laughs> <laughs> and they would always be cartwheeling. And um, like at my house and my neighbor's house, we had a gate going in between the yards and there was like this hill in between the gate. And so we would all just jump it. But, you know, these mini bikes have absolutely no suspension. And with Predator Motors, we're probably going like 35 miles an hour <laughs> and have just the most violent end over end crashes, mini bikes flying everywhere. It was a ton of fun. Yeah, sounds like a good time. Do you still have your mini bike? Or did you sell it off? No, we sold those three mini bikes, but I was just looking through my photo album like two days ago and and uh, stumbled across a picture with all three of our mini bikes lined up in my shop. And I sent it to my friends and now we're all joking about getting mini bikes again. Although it seems like they're getting harder to find and more expensive. Like there's this mini oh, bike yeah. craze going on. 
It is weird, man. Go-karts and mini bikes. Like I said, I never had uh, go-karts growing up. We had a few chassis that we, when we were kids, we just couldn't quite get working right. And uh, so ended up getting go-karts later in my upper teens and my friends were in the early 20s. So we had a race night, Thursday, Thursday night thunder. And we just had like, basically back then is before the predators were available. This is mm-hmm. back, you know, 20 years ago, but we'd rip around on these old Briggs and Stratton engines that were modified straight pipes loud as hell. And, uh, we'd have a lot of fun on Thursday nights, but we end up slowly like some breakdown and some we got rid of. And, um, we end up just kind of getting rid of our go-karts after a few years of good race yeah. and kind of like what you guys have with your mini bikes. And just recently I was kind of thinking about reviving the Thursday night thunder and even the crappy garden carts are right. so hard to find now. And they're so expensive, like a thousand dollars. Like, are you yeah. joking? Yeah. They're hard to find. When I bought this taco I, mini bike, I think I spent like maybe 50 or 75 bucks on the frame, you know, and another 100 bucks for the engine. So, it was, you know, it was like a $200 mini bike. But now it seems like just finding anything is hard. And then if you do, it's like people want like three or 400 bucks, um, yeah. you know, just for some crappy frame. Um, just too much, too much for yeah. it. You know, it's it kind of takes out the fun of it. You're not, you don't really want to dump that much money into something like that. But your price that you got that stuff for was perfect, you know. You know, it's funny though because I would sooner spend like forty hours building something than feel like I'm overspending by like you know a two hundred dollar <laughs> frame. Like you know, yeah, yeah. I, you know. They still make taco mini bikes. The top mm-hmm. of the line is the 100B that has full front and rear suspension. It's got a swing arm on the back and, uh, like leading link forks in the front. $2,395. What? Yeah. That's crazy. You can, you can buy a, a used, can... uh, uh, Grom for less than that, I think. It, yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, it's not a motorcycle. I don't want suspension. I don't want any bells. It's like I want it to be two wheels and an engine and as basic and simple as possible. And there's a kit from Go-Kart USA called the Frijole. It's the most minimal frame you can find. And I want to go out and find like an old like Jacobson two-stroke engine, you know, off a off an old reel mower or something and do that. I would much rather buy that kit and put it together than just buy, you know, whatever you can find available used. I've got three projects right now that are all used, worn out salvage parts. The idea of buying a kit of new parts just sounds like such a luxury that they're all designed to fit together (laughs) and they're not worn out and they're not missing pieces. And I was like, Wow, that'd be really cool. So, uh, for 600 bucks, you can basically buy everything minus the motor of this, of this Frijole mini bike. And it, it, it just looks borderline usable. It's got tiny tires, no suspension. You know, the ends of the fork are just piped that are flattened and drilled yeah. out. So it's, it's yeah. like, it's like. <laughs> But it's like perfect for around the neighborhood. Exactly. It's like kind of the charm of, I don't want a motorcycle. I've already got those. I want something that's just so basic. It's silly. And that sounds like something that I might have to do at some point in the future, but I have three project bikes right now. So not anytime in the near future. So, (laughs) so while we're on the topic about mini bikes, I figure I might as well share a little idea hatched up last summer and that's when we found the used mini bike prices were ridiculous 
But I was talking to my brother. He's a few years older than me. We do a lot of projects together and trips together and stuff and been riding motorbikes with them since we were kids. But uh, and one of my other friends I work with, he rides dirt bikes a lot, trail riding. And I uh, hatched an idea of getting some used mini bikes and taking them from where I live out to the coast, maybe 60 some miles, packing camping gear. I've done a lot of dual sport trips, so I'm used yeah. to like packing all my gear. But it would just be silly to take these little mini bikes, take a little extra gas, and we'd have to link up a lot of logging roads to trails, a little bit of fog line riding on some of the paved roads. But it would be kind of fun to get out there and spend like three days and make a little video of it. But um, we started seeing the prices were ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I, you I know, start looking be... almost at new, almost at like a like a hardware store. I've seen them parked down in front of hardware stores, like. $600 bike doesn't sound too bad. The new, you're like, well, right. <laughs> you know, I like building my stuff, but when you start pricing out the parts individually, it's probably best to buy a kit. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it would be super fun, though, to do like an adventure ride, you know, on a mini bike, you know, like actually do some mileage. Um, uh, my buddy, when I was talking about when we got into our mini bikes, he would take his mini bike on the most absurdly long rides. I mean, like, like across cities, you know, I'm just like a 40 or 50 mile ride, like down, not highways, but like definitely in places he shouldn't be riding. And I always <laughs> just thought that was absolutely crazy. <laughs> That's pretty good adventures. Did he ever get pulled over for any of those uh, awesome no, adventures? No, surprisingly not. Probably when I saw a grown man on a mini bike, you're like, Dude, it just felt bad for him. <laughs> we're just going to let this dude go. <laughs> He's just doing the best he can. <laughs> One thing that I discovered, not just Vestivas, but you and I have had the same motorcycle model. You have or had a, a CB354. Yep. Oh, that that is the one bike that I probably regret selling the most. And uh, it, it, it was just it was one of those things that just riding down the street at the speed limit just made you smile because it's such a cool little precision built tiny four cylinder motor. It's just awesome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're neat, man. They are really fun because, you know, mine only maxes out at like 85 tucked. You know, it's not very fast bike, but it sounds great at 10,000 RPMs. And you're doing and, and you're doing what, 55 or six grand at 55 on the highway. So they even sound really great when you're just like moving with traffic. Well, they're fun because you can really feel like you're getting on them without really breaking the law very often. Like they don't really, they rev out really good. They sound great, but they're not crazy fast, but they feel fun to ride. And yeah, mine was, you hear barn finds. I got mine for 200 bucks. On a oh. friend of mine. There was one <laughs> up and this is like eight, 10 years ago. But um, before that I got a CB 200 out of my friend's barn. It was bad shape of twin cb200 and i fixed that up since then i gave the cb200 to uh, my nephew and i got the cb350 which is my main street bike um you funny you mentioned the regretting that selling that bike one of the bikes my brother regrets selling a long time ago was a cb400 uh, super sport he sold it when he had knee surgery and he thought he'd be a long time before he could ride that bike again and he sold it to a fellow he knew and cheap too like 400 bucks and, you know, he regrets that one, but I, oh well. My best friend in high school that I used to ride with, there were three of us that rode together, and one of them had a 76 CB400F that was perfect. It was the canary yellow with black side covers. And mm-hmm. 
to me, that's still one of the most gorgeous, perfect looking motorcycles with the four into one pipe on it. And it, it, it's just, they're just beautiful and so cool to ride. I had a little 125 at the time. So I, uh, yeah. And then he traded it in on a Norton 850, and that was the biggest mistake he ever made. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I, it sounds like you guys have been riding most of your lives, so I take it, right? Yeah. Off and so, on, yeah. So I'd like to talk about your guys' a little bit of history in your motorbikes, and if you do street, trails, dual sport, and all that stuff. Um, to answer your question, uh, I'll talk about um, how I got into motorcycles and this podcast and all that. Um, so I grew up around um, dirt bikes mostly because my dad was a factory Suzuki motocross mechanic for a mm-hmm. motocross team. Okay. And, and this was like mid to late nineties, early two thousands. And so I was just always around motocross. Um, and so he also used to build a lot of just two stroke race engines in general and a lot of like road race, two stroke, um, engines. And so I was, you know, oftentimes around two-stroke race bikes of, you know, on-road, off-road, you know, all of it. And mm-hmm. I just, I love motorcycles, like live to ride motorcycles. And, um, you know, eventually got my driver's license and started riding street bikes uh, and have had, I don't know, many, many, many street bikes over the course of, you know, between 16 and now. I like got into kind of restoring motorcycles to some degree. So like in my workshop, um, I have my own powder coating oven. Um, like I do my own paint and like I said, I have like the mill and lathe. And so, uh, I love old, you know, motorcycles, especially old two strokes, but you know, old motorcycles of any kind. And, and on this podcast, I've talked a bit about some of them. Uh, one of them was a Yamaha TX750. And on this motorcycle, there are like no parts available for it. And so, for instance, the starter clutch went out. And so I was, you know, able to in the workshop um, take a starter clutch for something else, like remachine the whole hub assembly on the TX750, like basically make the electric start work for it again. Yeah. Um, Cause there's just no parts available for it. Um, and so I like to do stuff like that with old motorcycles. I've got a couple of RZ three fifties and RD three fifty uh, Suzuki GT seven fifty. So like a bunch of old two stroke street bikes um, still have some motorcycles, uh, dirt bikes. I recently restored a Honda Z 50 um, a 1994 Honda Z50. I restored it for my son. Hasn't actually been ridden yet, but it probably yeah, he re- he restored it so nice <laughs> he won't let his son ride yeah. it. Yeah, well, oh. I, I restored it like knowing that like this is you know gonna get crashed and that's fine. You know, it's just it'll be nice, and then I'll just let him ride it. He can learn how to ride, crash it, dent the tank. It's cool. I don't care. But then after I finished it, I was like, no, it's just it's too nice. It's really too nice just to let him learn how to ride on. And so now I'm kind of like loosely looking for another motorcycle for him to learn on before mm-hmm. letting him loose on the full freshly restored Z50. But yeah, so that's kind of my history of motorcycling. The the Z50 was the first bike I ever rode. I think it's probably the first bike a lot of people started on. But yeah. a neighbor had one. It was, it was I was probably 
it's probably 1985, maybe in 86. And it was an early 80s model, but I was probably 1985 when I wrote it and crashed it in a holly bush at my neighbor's house. Like, yeah. only thing that to crash it into, you know, you barely can ride a bicycle and you put it on right. any bike. And yeah. <laughs> right into the holly bush, man. Yeah. They're fun bikes. Mm-hmm. They sure are. And I, um, I early-ish, like high, late high school and into college a little bit, was good for a while letting getting other people to lend me their bikes to ride <laughs> before I actually had my own. So I don't know how that actually worked, but dirt bikes, street bikes, whatever. And then um, after college, I ended up getting, uh, well, I had for a brief moment in college an RZ350. Um, but as with all things in college, it's like, oh, next, yeah, got to pay for the next term. So oops, that goes, that went real fast. Um, but it was only after college that I got my first legit real street bike. That was an RZ500, which you're like, well, how'd you get I'm that? I'm so like, well, jealous of. <laughs> yeah. Living living in the Detroit area, going to Canada where they were legally available was no big deal and brought it across and just you know, before it was too much of a thing. Um, and yes, I, that is the one bike I do regret having to sell. But I is one of those things of uh, the company I worked for went out of business. It was a multi-billion dollar corporation called Worldcom and they went bust. So I needed I needed to raise money. So that had to get sold. Um and then, but um, so I've had uh, oddball street bikes. So RZ500, TZR250, which I got from a friend who imported it from not in Japan, but one of the, the one of the, um, drawing a blank, but whatever. So he imported that when he came back, had a 93 Honda CBR900 RR, and I'm missing, oh, my RS125 uh, road race, Honda RS125 road race bike. I loved that yeah. thing. That was amazing. Uh, I currently have an X, a Yamaha XS400 that I inherited from my father-in-law with like 1,015 original miles on it, um, wow. but had all kinds of problems because it sat for 25 years. Has all kinds of problems. It's not a past tense. True. It's not. It's yeah, not past tense yet. Um, <laughs> true. Fair point. Um, yeah, it's an ongoing project since we started this podcast. I think it's run three times ever since we've in the five years we've had this podcast. So, um, and I almost last week was fast enough to buy a crappy, uh, and I stress the word crappy, uh, Aprilia Tuono that was for sale for like $1,600, <laughs> but someone beat me to the punch. So, um, I, I'm desperately looking for the next bike, but I've got a few other things I got to get paid off first. So, Although the next bike I ride will probably be the new Royal Enfield 350 Meteor. So mm-hmm. I just attended, attended in air quotes, the yes. uh, <laughs> media launch for it. And it was long. Yeah. We we have a history with having people from Royal Enfield on here and they're all great people. But it lacked a little professional polish, I thought. Uh well, I, I can say having done a few of these things online with major OEMs, car OEMs, it was a little, it wasn't quite as polished, but it wasn't as bad as it. I've seen a few. So I'll give them some credit on that. It, the Meteor's a neat bike. Yeah. It's it's only 20 horsepower and it's a little full figured for its displacement mm-hmm. and size. But we've talked about it on the podcast before. I I find it interesting. It's not quite a cruiser. It's it's slightly cruiserish. It was developed for the Indian market 
they're releasing it in the United States because they can, because emissions worldwide are tight enough that they can get it through EPA without a whole lot of extra work. So they're, I think they're kind of throwing it at the wall and seeing if it's going to stick. I looked at it as I thought about it afterwards yesterday and said, this is actually going to be a reliable Buell blast. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, Motorcycle Safety Foundation courses, it's the perfect motorcycle for that. So if they can do a deal with MSF to to be like the official bike or supply and with that, I think that would be a huge win for them. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And they, they used to have the 500 bullet in the United States, and I think they still sell it. But the problem is we have so many high-speed freeways that they're just they're not reliable the way Americans ride. So I love Royal Enfield, their history. I think they're a really cool, scrappy company. I love what they're doing. I think they're democratizing a lot of the market, which I like. I have to say we've had Brie Poland on and she's an incredibly cool individual and I want to see her efforts succeed. She's the head of sales for the Americas for them and uh, has been very interesting and very good to us. And uh, I don't know if I would want to go out and spend $4,400 on a 20 horsepower air-cooled single. But if I were, that would be the one I would buy. <laughs> As someone, I forgot where I saw someone brought up. Maybe it was in one of the, uh, like on motorcycle.com or something in the comments after they posted the article about it. A scrambler version of that might be kind of cool. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that would be pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, I can see that. But that's almost going to step on the Himalayan sales. So. Yeah, true. Hey, I was just going to mention, since we were talking about RZ350s, one just sold on Iconic Motorbikes auction. And it's like a complete runner, but it's pretty, it's pretty nasty. I mean, it's not in great condition, but uh, $9,844 is what it sold for. Yeah, pretty shocked. You know, I've been watching Bring a Trailer lately. And it absolutely defies logic what things sell for. Some it things does. have sold so cheaply that I'm like, dang, somebody mm-hmm. got a really good deal. And other ones, it's like, you spent that much on that? You know, uh, I know. The, the, uh, a 68 uh, Chevy pickup. Now, granted, it was a long bed and it was very nicely restored and had beautiful black paint on it, but it went for over $20,000. And I'm like, yes. It's a 68 Chevy truck. It wasn't anything remarkable. It wasn't like it was all original or low mileage or it was just a really nicely cared for old truck. Square body C10s have been a thing for five years. And that is just like off the charts. Yeah. It's just so stupid how much those square bodies are selling for, especially blazers. Oh, God. Yeah. And on the other hand, some of the bikes that they've had on recently – I thought went for really low money. Yeah, it seems like motorcycles, except for CT seventies, don't do well on. Brain <laughs> yeah, and then that's six grand for one of those. Yeah, yeah, some of those CT seventies there for a moment were selling for like seven or eight thousand dollars. No way, that's insane. Yes, I think one of them sold for seventy eight hundred. Yeah. That's- we had a lot of those growing up, man. Once yeah. you figure out when you're a kid, you figure out how to clean the jets in a carburetor. Yep. You could find those in people's garages in the old town I grew up in. And we'd pick them up for a hundred bucks when I was a kid, you know, yeah. And yeah. push it home and uh, clean the carb. And <laughs> before you yeah. know it, you're ripping around. <laughs> I put so many miles on a trail 70 when I was like, 
between eight and 16, pretty much. Yeah. Oh my gosh, I put so many miles. I have two of them now. We always had automatic three speeds. That's the only uh-huh. ones we came across. We, came, we had a blue one. We had a red one. Their names for some of the colors are pretty rad. I can't recover, yeah. remember them offhand. We had like, a gold one, like, like Topaz orange. Yeah, and then yeah. Sapphire blue. Yeah. Yeah, or maybe, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we had a wide range of them growing up at different times. But um, some of the kids up the road, I heard of it. I've never seen it. But I suppose they had a blue one with a four-speed clutch. You guys ever come across one of those clutch models? Well, yeah, those are the CT um, 70 H's. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's yeah. the special. So those are the four speed manuals, but they are really rare. <laughs> Actually, I've never seen of or even heard of a blue one because um, hmm. I, uh, I don't know when those came out. I feel like that might have been a 1972 thing. Okay. How about those throttles? How many times, like, those? the throttle design is wicked bad. Like, luckily yeah, they make a few tube. horsepower, but yeah. that throttle arrangement, those hard grips, they always stick. Re- remind me, and Garrett, you might be remember this one, maybe not. Um, on the Iconic Motorbikes auction and the Buy It Now, there is a 95 Bomoda Super, Super Mono Road Racer for sale. Now, did that use the Ducati Super Mono engine? Yes, Okay, that's what I thought. Well, no, 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 no. It used no. the uh, Rotax. It, it oh, used, that's right. It used that's the right. BMW. That's right. that's right. Okay. But still, ooh, sorry. <laughs> Anything but Moda, I'm like, ooh, hello. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to polish up on my modern bikes, man. I don't really <laughs> look at much modern bikes. I've had a lot of bikes growing up, and kind of when I find one I like, I stick with it for a while. But you guys, I... Can't keep up. Only bike I've actually been interested in caught my eye to actually, I've never owned a brand new bike in my life. I've always bought like worn out ones or ones that I can't mm-hmm. afford and fix up. And um, the KTM, the last bike I bought, I actually bought a good running bike for one of the first times ever that was like freshly rebuilt, low hours. But only bike I've really considered buying new. And uh, I'm kind of a big fan of small displacement. It's the new Honda Trail 125s when they come yeah. out. I think they're out now, but I haven't seen one at the local shop. Just because I did a lot of riding in my teens and early 20s on like, uh, me and my brother got these old Honda Cubs we fixed up. Mm-hmm. They were wickedly slow, yep. but they're fun, man. We had some awesome trips on those things. And uh, I kind of think it would kind of re- revitalize my interest in motorcycles, Um I know it sounds weird to you guys, but like I've kind of gone through a little phase recently where I've done a lot of dual sporting in the past to different states and camping, doing solo trips and camping with friends and uh, and then kind of switch over to trail bikes in the last few years. And and I kind of went on a, some big rides last summer, some really long trail rides, and mm-hmm. I kind of lost my juice to go ride. I don't know what the deal is. This is the first time in my adult life that I've ever really like... I, it's a weird thing. I don't know if you guys ever gone through a phase where you've kind of stepped away from motorcycles for a while or not. Yeah, but. for sure. Oh yeah, I did. I did for about twelve years. Okay. I had just gotten married and my wife didn't ride, so I got rid. That's when I sold the CB three fifty F. Okay. We, that was only a couple years after the point where I had eleven motorcycles in my garage, and I think <laughs> I just got really burned out. So. Uh, for about 12 years, we played with watercraft instead. Uh, actually, two Yamahas and a Sea-Doo. And her whole family had them, and her mom and dad loved to go down to the lake. And then at some point, 
you know, our nieces got into high school. They had something to do every weekend with school and band and choral practice or whatever. So they stopped going. They got rid of their sea Her parents got old enough. They couldn't go down to the lake anymore. And suddenly what we did, you know, easily five, six, seven times a summer of take a long weekend and go down to the lake, the whole family stopped doing it. And the two of us going down by ourselves without friends to go with us wasn't as fun. She decided that she wanted to learn how to ride. So when my wife learned to ride, we got back into bikes and got rid of the watercraft. So there was about a 12-year period in there that I didn't own any motorcycles. So I grew up racing, and it was really just high competitive, high stress. And I was racing, like, basically representing my dad's business, which was a race engine business, and there was just a lot of pressure. And so I got to a point where I just didn't want anything to do with motorcycles. I didn't want to ride a motorcycle, didn't want to look at a motorcycle. You know, as a young adult, just like spent a few years and I, I never had a motorcycle, didn't ride, um, really had no interest in it, but then sort of got back into it. And now I'm at a point where I don't really ride very much, but I just like to sort of collect motorcycles and work on them. Just do like really short rides close to my house and then that's about it. So I still ride dirt bikes um, occasionally, but I was just looking because I keep maintenance logs of all of my motorcycles. Um, The last time I started my motocross bike was April 2017. Oh, wow. So I and the last time I ran it, I drained all the fluids, gas, like, you know, prepped it for sittings i knew i wouldn't be riding it for a while although i didn't think it was going to be this long so yeah i um have a trip planned for um the middle of may and i'll be going to ride uh, motocross bikes with some friends out in a desert a few hours from my house so it'll be the first time that i'll have ridden this motorcycle in yeah four years now oh wow yeah yeah, I you know, I did um I've ridden a lot of dual sports, a lot of small dual sports over the years. I've ridden a I had DR two hundred I used to ride for most mm-hmm. of my transportation. I used to have a DR two hundred. Yeah, that was pretty good, you know. I rechanged the gearing a little bit and um cruise about sixty on the highway, but you yeah. know, you can pick and choose your roads. Sometimes you go a little slower up some of the hills, but me and an old girlfriend, she had an XT225 at that time, and mm-hmm. I live all towards the tip of Washington. Um, and so we packed up our gear, and we spent two weeks, rode those little displacement bikes all the way to Montana, to Continental Divide, and uh, visited some friends and rode back. And so, and I've been over the Cascades numerous times from my house. I've taken on, you know, pretty good rides over there. But over time, you know, I put about 20,000 miles on that DR200 and started wow. kind of developing a rod knock. And so... I ended up building up another bike and kind of got into bigger stuff. And the last dual sport I've had is a XR650L. And oh, it's yeah. been a good bike. I've been out to Montana a few times on that, taking on a solo trip for about 26 days, about as maximum I could wow. get off of work and solo trip and went out to Montana and soaked in hot springs along the way. And it was a pretty like milestone point for my dual sport trips. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, I have a son now, so I kind of laid off the dual sport as much. I want to be around him. And um kind of switch gears to trail bikes in the last yeah. few you kind of keep riding kind of more and more difficult tight terrain and uh i don't know i like my knees man and i yeah. haven't got knee braces <laughs> yet but like i've seen a lot of friends with damaged knees over the years and it's yeah. like i like hiking too so i'm kind of yeah. thinking about what else i want to do you know so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
I got a bolt here. I got uh, first round of playoffs for uh, curling league start tonight. So I got. I was going to ask you about your curling. Have you become a good curling player? I am reasonably okay for someone who never threw a rock before January. <laughs> good, good. And you're still enjoying it? Yeah, a lot of fun. So, yeah, I've been, been curling three or four nights a week. So Cool. Yeah, mostly three nights. But, uh, yeah, so I'm in two playoffs and uh, actually three playoffs. But <laughs> So the teams I'm on are pretty good. Whether or not I'm any good, though, you know, <laughs> That's subject for debate, but uh, yeah. So playoffs start this week. So very cool. Got to got a got a jet and get ready to go do that. So we'll wrap it up here, Mike. You are welcome back anytime. Yeah, and I didn't realize that you're in Washington. I think I did know that, but I only just remembered when you said something because I'm in Vancouver at the oh, southern end of Washington. Super close, then. Yeah. yeah so if awesome. ever uh, I do a motorcycling trip and head up that way, I'll have to give a shout to him. Yeah, for sure. And I would love to get back on here again sometime. If you guys will have me, it would be fun to talk a little bit more uh, about bikes and different things like that. And uh, it was great. This is the first time I've been on a podcast. So thank you guys. At some point we need to have a more in-depth discussion on uh, predator tuning. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I can say they'll be you'll be on for predator tuning, and then you can repeat your uh, best of choices for home fab in TIG, MIG, and uh, and uh, flux welding, and then plasma cutters. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I just okay. want to mention also that we do plan on building a little methanol powered predator at, in the shop that I have. So yeah, we'll have to talk about tuning and stuff. So. <laughs> So, you know, the okay. predators, the predators are one of those things you can hop them as, you know, the sky's the limit. But at yeah. some point it becomes like, how much money do you want to dump into a hundred dollar yeah. block? You yeah. know, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much, guys. It's been fun. I yeah, appreciate, appreciate it. Listeners, we'll be back next month. Thanks for listening to us. And uh, you can see photos of everything we're talking about on Hooniverse.com. Uh, uh, we're part of the Hooniverse podcast network. And uh, you can go to our Facebook page. Just search for The False Neutral on Facebook. And, Mike, what's your YouTube channel? Where else they, can they get a hold of you and well, see you what you're up to? Well, you can check me out on Mike Vestiva on Instagram or Mike Vestiva on my YouTube channel. And um, subscribe if you're interested and want to see some projects and tips on welding, things like that. And I don't know if you can post a link on anything on one of your sites here or Absolutely. not. Absolutely. Absolutely. Put, put it on Facebook. Put it on Hooniverse. Cool. Okay. Until next month, so long.